Hey everyone, it's that time of year again. School is up and running and the holidays are coming up and anxiety in kids and families is on the rise. So we are re-releasing our favorite podcast called How We Explain Anxiety to Kids and Families. It is our most listened to podcast. It is the one that we as clinicians send out to our clients the most and is also the one that Caroline, Sarah, and I resonate with the most because we're essentially talking about how we manage our own anxiety. So take a listen and I hope it's helpful. Thanks so much. Welcome to Podcast Therapist, presented by Virginia Family Therapy. I'm Sarah. I'm Caroline. And I'm Amanda. As three family therapists, we know how hard it is to feel like you're being the parent you want to be while juggling everyone's needs. We specialize in helping families just like you during the long days of multitasking and constant searching for the bar of success. Our podcast mixes expertise, real life advice, and embarrassing stories. Whose embarrassing story? Let's walk through this together. Hey, come on in, pull up a couch. Welcome to today's session. Amanda, Caroline, and I talk about how we explain anxiety to kids and families that we work with in our practice. We talk about the brain and body connection. We talk about how sensitive and empathic kids often are a little more anxious. And we even touch on evolutionary psychology. Who knew there was such a thing? We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Podcast Therapist. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi. I'm good. I'm feeling a little anxious. Yeah, are you really? A little. What are you anxious about today, Sarah? I'm anxious about sharing about anxiety. Well, isn't that quite the introduction? <laughs> I always have some anticipatory anxiety at the beginning of recording. And how do you evidence that? Like, how do you know you're having anxiety? I get the giggles. Like, I get awkward laughing, um, which I love. And I start sweating, as <laughs> we, we all know. <laughs> we talk about Caroline's sweat a lot in this room. Have I told you guys about MSS? Beg no. your pardon? No. McGargle sweat syndrome? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You, you guys have something you we call it? We might have to cut this out. <laughs> I kind of like it. So my dad sweats so much. And my mom is one of those people who can like go to the gym and like her hair isn't even touched. Like she can walk out and continue on her day. But my sisters and I, like we all played sports. And even when I work out now, like I get really sweaty or just in the summer when it's hot out, I'm like a full body sweat. This is so gross. (laughs) But so my sisters and I in high school started calling it McGargle sweat syndrome. (laughs) Well... I do like hearing about your MSS Mm -hmm. before we get on a podcast. You know, I mean, this is only making my anxiety worse, really. (laughs) (laughs) This is, it's our threshold to start. When Caroline breaks a sweat, we're like, oh, good, we can go now. It is. Because today, y'all, just so we can orient you to why we're talking about Caroline's sweat is because we today are going to talk about how do we talk to kids and families about anxiety and how do we explain it to kids and families when they come into our session. Right. So anxiety is one of those things that I think most people experience at some point in their life. And it can be really helpful. Like the fact that I'm a little bit anxious at the beginning of recording a podcast is totally normal and helpful. A hundred percent. And I will say, I think I have this conversation with the majority of the people who walk through my door is 
noticing folks' anxiety and also talking to families about what that anxiety is and what it means and explaining it to parents and explaining it to kids. Because I think there's this unhealthy idea out there that like anxiety is bad and we're all scared of anxiety and there's like anxiety, it's a disorder, but ultimately we all have anxiety a lot of the time and it's really helpful for us. Yeah. I mean, anxiety actually is a part of many other things. Like I work a lot with trauma survivors and and anxiety is a big part of, of being successfully surviving trauma. And it's actually can be a useful part of that. And so, I mean, the way our bodies and our brains are designed, anxiety is a great alarm system for all of us, and it doesn't have to be unhealthy. And I don't know about you guys, but I can feel anxious about something that I'm excited about, too. It doesn't, it, it isn't always a bad, terrible thing that's about to happen, like you said, Amanda. Absolutely not. And so, but we want to share it with you and talk to you guys so that you all can understand kind of when you see anxiety for yourself or when you see it for your kids and how you can conceptualize it and kind of use this as you're leading your family through times where you might be struggling with more or less anxiety. Plus, I ordered all those bags with our name on it (laughs) and we need to use them. So I would like to heighten everybody's anxiety a little bit to put those to use, please. Maybe that would be good for me at the beginning of these recordings. Oh, maybe we should give a bag podcast therapist deodorant. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not against it. I don't smell, <laughs> but <laughs> so we just did a little research, and we will. I just looked at the CDC, and it says that seven point one percent of kids between the ages of three and seventeen are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And when we heard that number. Like what? Were, what did you all say when I told you that number? I thought it was low. Yeah, I thought it was uh, some sort of statistic from like forty years ago. Even taking into the account that it says diagnosed, right? Because those are people who are going to a doctor, or going to a therapist, and getting it formally diagnosed. There's a whole bunch of people who are walking around with significant levels of anxiety that are not diagnosed by anyone. Yes, like in my head, I would think it's like one in five, if not more. I think it's more. I think it's more. Do you really? Maybe. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just anxious. So I just, no, I'm kidding. I think that maybe it's because I work so much in trauma, truthfully. Yeah. So I may see a lot more of it. But I do think that everybody goes through periods of time in their life, even if they're not diagnosed with anxiety, where di- we're anxiety is a factor. I don't think it, it, like when you meet someone who's not anxious, aren't you a little stunned? Yes. Yeah. Like I'm more like, oh, that person's really not an anxious person at all. Like I love that. That's great. But I'm always a little more surprised when I meet someone who's not rather than when I meet someone who is. But I also think, and maybe this is true for our listeners. So I think the three of us are relatively anxious in our own selves. Like we were, we chose a field that uses our anxiety. We worked really hard to get here. And so the people that we tend to surround ourselves with probably have a healthy dose of anxiety as well. That's true. Yes. Right. So we're not only does our job have us meeting more people with anxiety, but also like who we are as people probably has us talking to more people with anxiety because part of anxiety is having a ton of empathy and a ton of sensitivity. And we're probably more drawn to people like that. That's probably true. And actually, I mean, I would love for you, if you don't mind talking about that sensitive um, piece, because I think a lot of parents will come in to talk to us and they'll say, you know, my child has just been really sensitive Um, Sometimes they say it in a nice way, sometimes not such a nice way, but the sensitivity piece is what they see it as or the framework that's used. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, it is anxiety, obviously. So how, 
Like, what do you do if someone comes in and says, my kid is a really sensitive kid? Like, what does that mean to you when you hear that? Because I, I actually hear different things when I hear it. Like, it means different things to me. So I would say when kids come in, kids and families, one of the things they will say is like, yeah, my kid is super sensitive. They love animals. When someone else is hurt, they are hurt too. They're always worrying about how other people are feeling. And sometimes that gets in the way of what they're feeling. And those cues for me are automatically like, okay, we're dealing with like a sensitive, anxious kid here. Because in my mind, sensitive slash anxious are two sides of the same coin. What would you say? How would you say that? Yeah. The actual saying, you mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it's two sides of the same coin. It's two sides of the same coin, I think. Anxiety and sensitivity are the same thing to me. I don't, I don't even conceptualize them as two different things because part of what being sensitive is, is that you're sensitive to your surroundings. I think your neurons, I don't know if this is true, but I conceptualize it this way. They're picking up way more information than a typically unanxious kid. So if you walk into a room, you notice the lights, you notice the corners, you notice how the person across from you is feeling. And you don't, it's not like you're even noticing it in your head. You're not Mm -hmm. saying, oh, there's Caroline. She's sweating. She must be anxious. (laughs) I would love for people to start noticing that. (laughs) But it's more like you're picking up their energy because your neurons are just firing they're sensitive neurons. And so sometimes that sensitivity can be such a huge gift in someone's life. It makes you a great parent or it makes you a great friend. It very frequently makes you work hard because you want to get things right. You can tell how your teachers are responding. If you answer right, you're sensitive enough to know if you're doing it right. You're sensitive enough to know like if your handwriting looks good enough or if there's a mistake on it. But if it is too much that's when it flips over to the anxious category. Like if you're up at night worrying about your handwriting or if you're ignoring your own feelings because you're so worried about someone else's feelings, that's when it goes from sensitivity to anxiety. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Is that how you all conceptualize it too? I do. I think I use maybe some different examples, but totally conceptualize it in a similar way. Um, I think there are some... So I do want to clarify, there's some folks that will talk about sensitivity. And sometimes that sensitivity is about like sound or smell or sight, but those things also heighten an anxiety. Yeah. So it's also differentiating Mm -hmm. some of that with families, I feel like. So Um, talk about that. Can you like slow that down and talk about it? I don't think so. Yeah, no, I can't. Um, So I think when I, when I talk to families, I, I ask some of those questions of the, the, either the kid themselves, or I ask the parents if they've ever noticed some of those things, because I think, um, there's the, you know, kids will oftentimes, if they have a sensitivity to something and it's uncomfortable, instead of sitting with the discomfort, they'll, they'll want to leave the, whatever's creating discomfort for them. So if it's a strong smell, then they want to back away from that. If it's a strong sound, they'll have a strong reaction to that or whatever it is. I mean, that's saying if it's a little kid, the older the kid is, the more they can verbalize some of those things. But I'm, I say some of those things that you do in a very similar way when families come in. Um, when I'm explaining it to a kid, for example, um, I talk about it being um, a, um, like a superpower. Mm-hmm. And I, I ask them if they've ever seen Harry Potter a lot of times because I, I'll say, you know, even though it's kind of uncomfortable, it's really this awesome thing to be empathic. 
and be able to feel things. It's just about learning to manage it. So, so can I slow you down really quickly? Yeah. Because I think you're using the word empathic in the same way that I use sensitivity. Yes, I so think that's true. Empathy, sensitivity, anxiety are all three sides of the same Yes, we're on a three-sided <laughs> coin. So I, um, what I say a lot of times is remember in the first Harry Potter when they first got their wands and they were blowing everything up in their faces because they oh, they're misfiring. Their yes. So I talk about how um, learning to manage empathy, which is more the term I use, um, is a lot like that. It's a, you have to learn to manage it. You have to learn to be able to use it to your advantage. Um, otherwise, it'll blow up in your face and make you uncomfortable. But um, I noticed I like that, that. that mm-hmm. a lot of um, empathic kids or sensitive kids, like you said, when they're in early grades of school, they'll the stories they come home and tell from school are about who got in trouble that day, right? Like mm-hmm. that impacts them rather than what they're learning necessarily. It was so-and-so got in trouble or so-and-so was being naughty. Like they worry about those things. Those are the things that stick in their brains from the day. And you know what's funny? Like that is kind of what I'm asking my kids about, mm-hmm. you know, oh, that's, that's what I'm leading. I don't necessarily want to know who's getting in trouble, but I'm more like, how is so-and-so feeling today? Or like, I just want to know how my kids' friends are feeling and who's friends with who. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe my empathy slash anxiety is coming through in those questions, huh? Maybe. I think that's a good thing though. I mean, I like that. I mean, I think teaching your kids about empathy and about how to, it's okay to like know where your feelings stop and other people's feelings start is important. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the examples I use with families when I'm trying to teach kind of everybody together is I'll say, you know, let's think of somebody who is maybe not as empathic as you are. And so they'll usually name a sibling. <laughs> you can throw somebody <laughs> under the bus of the family and they'll say, and I'll say, okay, so let's take that person and we put them in um, the emergency room at, our local hospital. And, um, I'll say after about an hour, if I took that person out of the emergency room and I said, what did you notice? They would say, well, the TV was on and I sat there for an hour and I waited for my turn. And there's another kid, you know, over there listening to music or whatever, but they would kind of describe what was happening around them, like an observation. And then I say, if I took a really empathic person and put them in the emergency room for just the same amount of time, and I brought them out of the ER and I said, what did you notice in the waiting room? They would say, oh, there was a little boy whose arm really hurt in the corner. And there was another grandma that was really worried about her granddaughter. And there was, but they would talk about the suffering that was happening. They would talk about the emotion that was happening in the room because that's what they notice. That's what they feel. And so that's how I like to explain it to people. It's kind of a weird example, I realize, but. No, I think it's um, spot on because we all, I, I, I identify with that as mm-hmm. a kid. Um, so I think it makes sense. So the thing I find when I explain it like that is I also talk about not everybody, like there's an empathy we teach in our Mm -hmm. families, but not everybody is born with the superpower of being an empathic and that um, being an empath is something a little bit different, which is like being sensitive, Mm -hmm. right? Taking and that it's really an amazing gift, but it, you can sometimes get overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. And so we talk a little bit about that. And I would say I've borrowed from both of you um, and how I talk about it. And I've added a few things in like I I mean, Sarah, you touched on this, like the desire to avoid Mm -hmm. when you feel anxious, Um, like whether it's a smell or a situation. And I talk a lot about like avoidance is so effective and works really well until it doesn't. 
That's a good and point. like it works and it works and it works. Like if you, if your homework is making you anxious and you take the stressor away, you immediately feel better, right? Like, or if you remove a stressor, you don't feel anxious anymore. But the problem is you're removing the stressor. You're not actually learning how to manage the emotion. And so I talk a lot about that with parents and families about like, hey, our goal is to empower your child. My goal is to empower you. My goal is not to enable your anxiety. Oh, yeah, that's good. Um, And then the other thing that I see a lot along with like the sensitivity empathy side of things is a nice dose of like perfectionism. Yeah. So this fear of like, I am so anxious about making a mistake. Yeah. And it's either I talk a lot about like anxiety is rooted in the past or the future. So what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? What if I fail my test? What if I don't study enough? Or just the reverse. Like, what if I said the wrong thing? What if I did the wrong thing? Could I have said that better? What if I failed my test? Right. And there's this whole level of uncertainty. And like, we just want to be sure. Like, mm-hmm. I want to be a hundred percent sure that I did everything exactly right because I'm so nervous about getting any feedback that like I wasn't sensitive to something or I wasn't an empath or I missed something. But like we can never really be that sure. And so I oh go ahead. Well, I explain that exact concept kind of to to young kids because I think this is funny in this way. Because I'm also like in a potty training (laughs) phase. I'm out of it, y'all. But I, I have been recently where I essentially say to folks like the first time a kid gets on the potty, like they're really anxious. They're nervous. They're giggling. They don't know what to do. They're very, very anxious. But we're not that anxious about going to the bathroom now, usually, right? Like, you know what to do. You go into the bathroom. And, like, the six-year-olds are like, (laughs) But, like, that resonates for them because they get that when you're uncertain, like, when you're a two-year-old potty training, you're nervous about it. But Mm -hmm. when you're six and you've done it a million times and you're in your safe place and you know what to do, you're not anxious about it. So I talk about it with, like, college-age clients with driving, Yes. Right? Like, remember when you started driving the process That's of getting in the car and like, okay, I have to get in the car and I have to put my seatbelt on and I have to check the mirrors and then I have to put it in like you are spinning out and it feels like and I'm like, now I get in my car and I can't even remember that I like drove home, but I did. Yeah, and it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a problem. We might have to have an intervention. Um, <laughs> no, but and then I talk a lot about like what our anxious brain tells us. And so our anxious brain tells us that like the worst possible outcome I can think of is most likely. Catastrophic thinking. Right. Right. So like, you know, I don't usually walk out of a test if I don't feel good about it and say like, well, maybe I got a B or C. I say I failed. I totally failed. I didn't get anything right. I messed it all up. Blah, 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 blah. blah, Right. Like my anxious brain Mm -hmm. starts to spin out because The worst possible outcome is that I failed my test and then my grade is bad and now I'm not getting into college and I'm not going to be happy, right? Like I have spun out in my anxious brain so far that part of it is about catching it. And then what I say to kids is like your anxious brain tells you that this worst outcome is most likely and that if it happens, you're not going to be able to handle it. Mm Mm-hmm. And my goal is to teach you how to handle it. Like you're still here. You're still alive. So even when awful outcomes have happened, 
you have survived them and you've been okay, but how do we make it feel less awful? So yeah, you're empowering them. That's exactly right. So you empower the kid instead of enabling anxiety. I talk a lot about anxiety won't kill you. Like there's nothing because that's like sometimes it just feels for young kids too is so overwhelming in their bodies and that creates more panic or they begin to get anxious about being anxious kind of mm-hmm. as a secondary thing. So like last time I did that, I got so anxious. So now I'm going to try to, like you said, avoid, but they almost get worried about the whole, like get anxious about being anxious. Like I said, they get worried mm-hmm. about it. So a lot of times I'll say, you know, what would happen? Like, what is, what do you think is going to happen? And they're like, um, I just, I feel sick. And I'm like, okay. And then mm-hmm. what's going to happen then, you know, and just kind of walk them through like, and what would happen after that? And what would happen after that? And what would happen after that? And it's interesting, like, a lot of times they're like, oh, I guess I would just feel uncomfortable. I'm like, yeah. And you would be okay. And you would manage it because you mm-hmm. felt uncomfortable in the past before. Right. And here you are. Like, you got through it. How, one question I have for you guys. So so one of the things I think is, that's really powerful is, and I know we all work with... Um, you know, young men and women is kind of trusting their intuition, trusting their moral compass, trusting that voice in their head. Right. But also I find with some of my anxious, more anxious kids that I work with, that anxious voice can almost feel like intuition. So like Mm -hmm. teaching the kids to know the difference between that anxious voice and that intuitive voice can really be a little tricky. I think, I mean, um, I, I spend time on that with kids sometimes if I feel like that they're kind of leaning that way. Because there are kids who will say, we're going on vacation and I'm really worried we're going to have an accident. I, I know we're going to have an accident. We're going to have an accident. Like mm-hmm. the voice that is like a warning voice, which is a solid warning voice, mm-hmm. but then it takes off and gets catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And um, But they're, it's almost like, oh, but I, one time I was anxious about failing this test and I did fail it. So now I believe that voice. Like, so it's about, so that's when I'm like, okay, so you have one time that you failed a test. Okay. Right. Like you failed one test. How many tests have you taken that you haven't failed? 10, 20, Mm -hmm. 80, Mm -hmm. 100. Right. So like, if we look at the evidence, most likely you're probably not going to fail. And if you do, right. So that would be the worst possible outcome. If you do, how are we going to manage it? What's the plan? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was like, what's your plan? Mm-hmm. I teach to, I, the other thing I say to kids is I was like, the secondary gain of being an anxious person is you always have a plan B. And, I, and then I'll say, do you know that a lot of people don't ever have a plan B, but you always have one. That is you? mind blowing to me. Most, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but and most C anxious and people, <laughs> no, I'm most just anxious kidding. people are like, absolutely, I have a plan. As soon as I walk in the room, I have a plan to exit, you know, but uh, there are so many people who don't have that. And I'll say, you know, that's anxious people don't have that. But your, your friends that are not anxious will rely on your plan. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so true. Mm-hmm. Who has snacks in their bag? Not me. Oh, you don't? I do. Oh, I was like the anxious mom in college and mm-hmm. in high I school had stuff and things like that. So that's not, so this is interesting because that's not where my anxiety lies. Like I, this is terrible, but I, no, this, is what, this is what I'm trying to actually teach a, a few clients right now is like, I'm a pretty good problem solver. So if my kids are hungry, I can usually, I know I have an anxious friend who will have snacks or <laughs> I'll like go to McDonald's or something. You know what I mean? Like, I know I can solve that problem. My specific anxiety is not about being prepared. It's about reading the room. It's like the emotions mm-hmm. of other people. 
Um, so you really can have different kinds of anxiety. Oh, yeah. So you, some people's is like being prepared, like having all the things, it looking nice. That's not where mine lies. Mine is all about how are people feeling and how are they perceiving me? And like, does everybody feel confident and happy with who they are? And somehow I think that's my job to make them feel that way. <laughs> but, but I think that that's, it's just different types of anxiety. And anxiety can lead kids to roles in families, right? So, mm-hmm. so we see, um, I mean, I know when I work with an adult who's really anxious, I can, after three or four sessions, kind of say, so you were the kid in the family that blah, 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 blah. And they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. how'd you know? I'm like, because of the way your, an- your anxiety manifests itself, like you were worried about this or your role was to, you know, take care of this or you're, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of times. But I think um, anxiety can just run in families too. I mean, we just see it. It is you know, it's genetic, it's genetics, right? And it's modeled behavior. Yes. It's a beautiful marriage of the two. Actually. This is the thing I actually tell people. I tell older people and adults, especially kind of scientisty people. Cause, and I really love evolutionary psychology. I think it's fascinating. I think it's really cool to think about how does an evolutionary psychology is just essentially how do who we are as human beings now, how did that work for us when we were hunters and gatherers? And I find it fascinating. It is really interesting. I agree. It's super cool. It's really cool. And so anxiety is such a useful tool to understand this very quickly. And I, and I it's think like the, the only reason humans still exist. Absolutely. Yeah. High five your ancestors that they were anxious people. Absolutely. That's why we're all here. A hundred percent. Because, and, and that's another reason why it runs in, in families is because if you think about it, if you're living in a cave with 10 people in your clan, tribe, I don't know, if you're living in a cave, 10 people, one of them hears something, right? One of them hears like a snap of a twig And nine people pick up on that anxiety, right? That one person hears Mm -hmm. a snap of a twig, gets scared. Everybody in that, in that cave picks up on the anxiety. And then if it's another tribe out there attacking them, they're all ready to go. But if those other nine people slept through it and were just like, oh, there's Caroline sweating again, they would, <laughs> they would die. You know what I mean? Sorry, Caroline. No, it's a, guys, I actually use the sweating in session all the time because I have really self-conscious teenage girls that I work oh, with yeah. and we walk and talk outside and I normalize sweating a lot. I love that. That's because too. teenage girls are like, I want to be like, I don't want to be sweaty. It's gross. Like, but, and I'm like, well, mm-hmm. Embrace your sweat. It is gross, but like, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. But so your sweat, like us noticing that and us picking up on that is actually such an evolutionary adaptation and it's a gift to us. And that's why we have survived to be able to tune into other people's emotions. But the problem is, is if you're just like going to your 11th grade math class and you're picking up on someone else's social anxiety and you're reverberating in your math class about someone else's like worry about like a zit on their face Mm -hmm. like that's when you have to turn it off when i talk to kids a lot about like midterms and finals and when you walk into school right like you've studied you've done it you feel prepared right you feel good and then you walk into school and suddenly you're so anxious Mm -hmm. because everyone around you is anxious it's vibrating yeah Mm -hmm. and so it's like we really do pick up on that And sometimes it's not helpful, right? Because sometimes once your own anxiety is kicked into gear, it's kicked into high gear. And then you're like, I didn't study enough, right? Mm -hmm. Now I'm second guessing all the decisions I made and it's freaking me out. Mm -hmm. But 
there's also like maybe there's a healthy like middle ground of like oh maybe like a little a little anxious before my test is what actually motivated me to study the night before well and i think when when there you know our brains are designed too that the more anxious we get the lower our cognition is so it's harder to think. And so I always explain that too, like really learning to manage it is going to be important. An example I use a lot with older teens or adults a lot of times is, you know, when you get pulled over for speeding, not assuming anybody in this room has ever had that happen, uh, by the way, on Friday night and, um, got welcome to New Jersey by a trooper. So, um, always fun. It was really, he was very nice, luckily. Um, but you know, I think what happens is you know, you, you kind of, um, can escalate to that place where you just can't think super clearly. And, and if you can manage that and get kind of a hold on that, that'll really help long term. But if you're speeding and the cop comes up or the police officer, sorry, comes over and says, you know, may I have your license and your registration in five, that first five seconds, you I, like every single time, not that this happened a lot, but a few times I've been caught speeding. Um, I, not that I speed a lot. Now I sound like I'm making a confession, but I, um, <laughs> I feel like all of a sudden I don't like, I know my license is in the car. I know my registration is in the car. It's always in the right spot, same spot. But for like five seconds, I can't think of where everything is. Like I start pulling open Absolutely. the, the you, you know, open like the glove box yes. that you never open. I know. And I'm like rifling through papers and like, you know, it's right there. It's all combined. But because I'm like flooding, because I feel anxious about the fact I've just been pulled over, I can't think clearly in that moment. And that's the example I use a lot because it's, you know, it's kind of a good example of like, if you're just calm for five seconds, you can pull your license out, you find the registration, you just hand it. It's like, no one is, you know, yelling at you. It's a very, you know... So there, it is a bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. As far as anxiety and performance. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you want to be, if you are not anxious at all, you're not going to perform. And it, as your anxiety increases, so does your performance on like athletic events, school stuff, music, job interviews. Music. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then if you're too anxious, your performance decreases. That's right. And that's what you're talking about. You're at mm-hmm. the top end of that where you're like, totally flooded, not functioning. Yeah. My driving performance was brilliant up until that moment (laughs) until the lights came on. Well, and what, what I talk to people about with like that bell curve too, is like, Hey, if you have really awful test anxiety, the test is no longer measuring if you know the information or not, Mm -hmm. the test is measuring how well can you manage your anxiety because you don't have access to any of what you've studied anymore. So I use an inside out, you know, the movie inside yes, out I love it. reference love for this. So, you know, and there's that scene. So, so there's like the control center or the command center where yeah. all the feelings are up top and that's our frontal lobes. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's where all we're having all of our thoughts. But then there's this one scene where it's like these guys are in the basement, like throwing away long-term <laughs> memories. Yep. And then they find what that they need and they send it up a vacuum so that it's like up in the command center where mm-hmm. they're thinking about it. If you're too anxious those guys can't operate down there. That's they right. can't get those long-term memories to the front of your brain mm-hmm. where you need them. They literally freeze. And so some you have to figure out how do you reduce your anxiety so that those guys can access the memories that they need. It's kind of dorky, guys. No, <laughs> I, I like love it. it. I mean, because in trauma, that happens a lot. There's a lot of stuff that happens with anxiety and interruption and Yeah. And you have to, and I explained it to my son the other day about it. You have to kind of say like loading, 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 and like Mm -hmm. just give your brain time to find those memories and take them to the front of your brain where you need it, Mm -hmm. where you can act on it. Mm -hmm. 
So one of my favorite articles that I share with parents all the time is from the New York Times. It's about teenagers having meltdowns. And I feel like they're usually sparked by anxiety, right? Like yes. social, a test, a grade, right? It's like some kind of anxious reaction. And the analogy they make is shaking a glitter jar. Mm-hmm. Oh, And it's like, so what happens in like the around puberty, the teen tween years, is that like the emotional center of your brain develops first. And so teenagers have like a really high powered emotional center and the like frontal cortex, the logic, reasoning, thinking part of your brain. That's what develops last. So you have these like mismatched Mm -hmm. things in your brain. So what happens, you feel a big feeling, you shake up the glitter jar And what we do in those moments, right? My kid is freaking out. We try to like engage with them. And you're trying to engage with the emotion center of their brain when the reasoning is just turned off, right? Like you're not going to get anywhere (laughs) when your teenage is... Same thing with a toddler. Right. No, it's exactly the same You have to wait until the glitter settles. And then usually the teenager themselves can say okay, I probably didn't actually fail my test. Or even if I did fail my test, it's going to be okay. Or like, I bet our friendship isn't totally over. I think if I call so-and-so, we can Mm -hmm. talk it out, right? But like, you really have to wait and let that huge emotion like peak and valley and then you can use reason. Mm -hmm. But like in the midst of the glitter storm, like your thoughtful suggestions are just not going to get you anywhere. They're basically shit. I mean, honestly, (laughs) like as a parent of a teen, what happens is if you start that discussion too early, the anxiety ball of fire gets redirected at you Mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that's how, you know, you've mishit the timing Mm -hmm. also because anxiety is something we trade in families. Um, You were talking about absorbing it in a classroom, but in a family, if you have more than one person that has a little anxiety floating around, it's very easy to hand that off absolutely, and and have it kind of be one person's escalating. So let's hand it to somebody else so that that person starts escalating that and it gets handed to somebody else. And it can look, it can really be pretty ugly and exhausting. That sounds so fun. It is really fun. And um, it's a great drinking game for parents. And, um, (laughs) but I think that, you know, truthfully for, for those teens, they're trying to figure out kind of where the edges are. And so what's in, in, and they feel like they're falling off the edge, quite honestly. And so the the more safe you can make that moment by just not being unresponsive, but just by staying calm, um, I will advise any parent of a teen or preteen to not respond to a high anxiety um, explosion with just calm down. Because honestly, that is the worst suggestion. Or I also anybody. think you don't have to feel that way. <laughs> I think I probably say that. Like, "Ah, just take that off the plate. Don't worry about that. Yeah. (laughs) Because you do want to help. And as a parent, there's nothing nothing worse than watching your own kids suffer. Mm -hmm. And so we do really want to help and try to fix stuff. And and oftentimes, I mean, I say all the wrong wrong things as a permanent practice as a parent. But it's still like the timing is important. And also... Again, we've said this before, Caroline, you're, you've pointed out a lot, and Amanda, you have too, but your timing of also um, joining with your kid during a full-blown anxiety experience is not the time to share your worst anxiety moment. Mm-hmm. And guys, I think we're going to go, and we next week we're actually going to talk a lot about ways to help our kids manage their anxiety and also ways that we can manage our anxiety. So this is just a little kind of tidbit into it, um, but I think... You know, I have another, actually, I have another one thing I want to say, because it goes back to this empathy and um, 
sensitivity piece is that I like to think about how do we help our kids use their superpowers and then turn it off when it's getting in their way, right? So how do Mm -hmm. we turn the dial up when it's useful and turn the dial down when it's too much? So I always give the example, I think you guys are in this boat too, where you're just like so connected to folks emotionally and probably were when you were like 11, 12. And I get tons of these girls in my office, which I love because I just it resonates with me so much where you walk into a social situation and you just feel everybody else's feelings. Like you can't function mm-hmm. like Caroline's like, are you like totally? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like a silent mute in middle school. You were? I, oh yeah. Cause I just felt everybody else's feelings oh. that I like couldn't, you know what I mean? So, so, so essentially what I say <laughs> is that I've found this job where I just get to turn it up as high as I can, right? Like yeah. I walk into my office every day and I'm like, tell me your feelings. And like one little eye twitch, I'm like, oh, you're sad. Like I get to just turn mm-hmm. it so high and live my best life. But the second I go home and I <laughs> use that same level of intensity with someone in my family, they want to like scream their head off. I always say if I ask my sons like, oh, do you want chicken for dinner or like hamburgers for dinner? And they're like, oh, chicken, mom. I'm like, oh, do they not like the hamburger? Like, why did they say it that way? Like, what's wrong with that? You know, and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, and they're like, mom, I just like chicken. And so I've really learned I have to turn it down when I'm in my house. And that's a practice too, right? Like, and we need to teach our kids when do they turn it up? Because it's useful, like around tests, around sporting events, around being a kind person, and then turning it down when they're having trouble sleeping, or they're worrying so much about someone else, they're not taking care of their own needs. Mm -hmm. And it's really realizing that we have some control and empowerment around when do we turn it on? And when do we turn it off? Yeah, that is so helpful. That That's really helpful. And I think we talked about this with one of our other podcasts too, about, you know, it's really okay for us to say to our kids, like, I love that you're worried about me, but I don't, I need you just to, right? Just yep. to mm-hmm. know, thank you for being kind. Thank you for being sweet about that. I don't need you to take care of me, but thank you for knowing that I'm having a hard day or thank you for knowing that. Like, what I, I think just- all like that comes back to something I talk to both of these things about like noticing Right. So like, how do I know that I'm anxious? And that's a huge piece of like working with anxiety is like, how do I know? Right. Like, is it my thoughts start racing? Is it that I start playing the what if game? Is it that I feel like I'm going to throw up? Is it? Yeah. Do I get a stomach ache? Am I sweating? Do I feel (laughs) shaky? Right. But like, I have to be like the first step to me of like, am I anxious is like, I have to be in tune enough with my own body, my own body sensations and my own thoughts. Right. And you have to, you have to be able to like sometimes connect the dots for them. Right. Like when I was a little kid, I could say, I feel sick. My stomach hurts. I feel sick. My stomach hurts. I was never, I didn't know I was anxious. It's it's so clear to me now. Right. But so sometimes it's like, learning to verbalize that and then like, okay, so what do I do to make my stomach feel better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's getting too far into the next set. No, that's what we'll do next set. Yeah. The next podcast. I think it's true. And even adults sometimes don't connect the dots. Like I, I think I see a fair amount of adults and, and sometimes they bump into those situations and they're not even connecting the, you know, the, the dots. I think it, you sometimes just have to use a different lens, right? The anxiety lens mm-hmm. to look at it and go, Hmm, what is exactly happening here? 
Where do you guys feel your anxiety? Um, as a kid, where did you feel it? That's a good question to start with, actually, because for a lot of people, it stays the same spot. Oh, I think probably I feel it in my chest. Um, I feel it in my chest for sure. And mm-hmm. I don't think it, I'm not, my heart isn't beating fast. I feel like a heaviness. So mm-hmm. it's like a heaviness in my chest with racing thoughts in my head. Like, mm-hmm. what is this person feeling? What are they going to say next? Mm-hmm. Like, just like all yep. about the other person's experience. As a kid, I think I was probably a little bit um, nauseous every now and again. Like I would get nervous. I had divorced parents. I would get sick traveling between parents and things like that. But I think um, now and more as I got older, I also felt it in my chest. Um and I remember having like, like even tingling in my hands and like in really anxious moments, knowing what it was, but feeling like that just tightness kind of, and feeling my breath be tight, learning mm-hmm. how to learn to manage that. Mm-hmm. I definitely was like a stomach ache, nausea kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would get super quiet. Like I would withdraw, kind of withdraw because I think my thoughts were racing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I think I like my stomach drops now. Like I'm like, Ooh, this anxious moments. Yeah. That Mm. doesn't feel good. Or I have what I joke about with my friends, what's called a total system meltdown, which is like (laughs) my stomach hurts and I'm sweating and I'm shaky. (laughs) And like, I'm just having like a total system meltdown and I need to like reboot. (laughs) Like, so I'm going to, I just need a minute. You know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I didn't know that much about anxiety growing up. And, um, when I really, started sharing feeling super anxious, like with my mom as I got old and I was older, I was probably out of college even. She was like, oh yeah, I felt like that when I was younger and your grandmother did too. And I was kind of like, heads up, like that would have been awesome to share with me as I (laughs) suffered through childhood. So when I had my daughter and we've always talked about it and um, sadly, I'm like, welcome to your DNA, but absolutely passed on and she can get anxious about things. And, And just being able to have the conversation and normalize it because it is like, it, it's just super normal for our family. And there's ownership in that too. If you can, if you can talk about it and that's why I do so much conversation around the evolutionary psychology piece is because if you can talk about it and understand it, you can also place it out of your body mm-hmm. and then have some ownership over it instead mm-hmm. of just like, it's this crazy thing that's happening to me. It's like, this is what it is. And I can think my way through it. It's just not the feeling taking over. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, even now, like sometimes like the feeling in my body is the first indicator, right? Mm -hmm. I have to be like, oh, my stomach hurts. And then I have to say to myself like, okay, why? Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can get into that like logical, thoughtful place to manage it as opposed to being like, I'm going to throw up. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Guys, just because we're anxious, that's why we're in this job. I want you to yeah. know that. Oh, yeah. It's like, a pre a prereq. <laughs> yeah, we're managing it. We're turning it off when we need to turn it off, but we're turning it on when we need to turn it off. Well, the empathy piece, right? Like yeah. you can sit with people and um and I think, yes, yeah, so we I think probably all three of us recognized it really and, and have turned it into a career mm-hmm. with a lot of extra training to make sure it stays within the guardrails. Um, it doesn't, but I will say like, there are certainly times where I'm anxious about stuff and, and I trade it off to someone in my house when I shouldn't. Um, so it's not, I don't practice it perfectly by any means. I'll realize, especially with a teen, like there are times where I'll get really, um, irritable about something. And I realize I'm not really mad. I'm just anxious about Yes. I'm worried about her or I'm anxious mm-hmm. about something, ha- you know, um, and sometimes it's a good anxiety, like it's actually real, but sometimes it can be a little over the top. And I think actually during the pandemic, even the last 
two weeks across the board in the referrals and my own experiences in my home. The anxiety, I think, has just increased across the board as we're making changes. So I think there's been an increase in, in throwing the anxiety around, I think. And I also... So hopefully this will give you all some language for it so you can know what's happening instead of just being like, oh, this is hard. And normalize. Mm-hmm. Like it's just part of it's part of people and it's part of being sensitive or aware of who's around and what everybody's feeling. And it's really a gift. It's not always a fun gift, but it's a gift. I don't think I would be where I am today if I wasn't anxious. No. no I wouldn't. Like I definitely wouldn't. How no. many careers would we have had, you guys? Oh. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't want to think about it. No, I mean, it's, you know, the other cool part about it is actually, though, being able to go into your job and love your job because it's a huge part of who you are. It's so incredible. To do that, it makes it cool. We also work in a really cool practice. We're lucky. You know, yeah, we're we are. <laughs> so we can sit and talk about this stuff. It's fun. Okay, y'all. Um, we hope you're doing okay. We're excited to talk to you next week about strategies for kids of all ages and you as the adults, hopefully listening to this, um, for ways to manage anxiety. Yeah. And hopefully you won't need a bag from us. <laughs> yeah. Cause we're going to be using them. <laughs> <laughs> I have taken them all. <laughs> we're also going to make you all deodorant. It'll be great. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for spending time with us. Yeah. Have a great day. Bye.